If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Missed the shows, no worries. We've got you covered on point and on the podcast today. What is going on when it comes to the world supply chains getting access to these vaccines? We'll talk with someone who's watching the world supply chains and can give us insight into that. In today's political climate, Erno O'Toole has to deal with Derek Sloan. But quitting Sloan, of course, will mean up giving up support. So what will the true cost be to uh, Mr. O'Toole should he quit Derek Sloan, we'll talk about that. And what are children telling us about COVID-19 and getting through this pandemic? Through their artwork, there is a story. Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Are you listening? The Liberal Party has been calling uh, for Aaron O'Toole to remove Derek Sloan from caucus uh, for many, many months now, uh, following a a number of uh, unacceptable comments uh, that he has made. Uh, We are uh, pleased that Aaron O'Toole has finally decided to to take leadership. We will see uh, how that unfolds. Delay means deflect. And since Trudeau's big vaccine portfolio is missing in action, he'll happily talk about Derek Sloan. But that is not the story. Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday, January 18th. Is the 18th, right? Oh, 19th, 19th. Sorry, day behind. Uh, And you know, what better way to avoid talking about hard truths on vaccines than to talk about something else? And yes, there's a conversation to be had on Derek Sloan, and we will have it later in the show, but it is not the conversation that actually matters. The only story that matters right now in this country to Canadians and what threatens Justin Trudeau's political fortunes is that Pfizer stopping all vaccine shipments to Canada next week. And so what do you do in politics? Well, you yell, hey, look over there. And there are political games of all sorts going on right now. I mean, there's the pre-election smearing of Aaron O'Toole with the Trudeau government trying to paint the lesser-known O'Toole as Trump light. I mean, you got guys like Adam Vaughn, a backbencher who's out regularly smearing O'Toole as an alt-right friend to racists. Sure, it's dirty, but it's very effective. And it's a big reason we're so divided. But you got to expect more of this, because as long as there's a Derek Sloan in the Conservative Party, then the Liberals will have plenty of ammo to throw at O'Toole. So until he's gone, Sloan is our weapon of choice, because he's a gift that just keeps on giving. I mean, first you had the smear he did of Dr. Tam, suggesting she was working for China, then his support of anti-vaxxers, and now taking a donation from a well-known white supremacist. And Sloan's going to fight the accusation. He's not going to go quietly into the night. But in this climate, there's no way he can stay if O'Toole, you know, hopes to avoid becoming a stinking albatross. And the leaders of the party, look, they're totally, when it comes to the donations, it's a totally different branch. So leaders aren't supposed to be accepting donations. And if they are, let me know, because that's a totally different story. But it's not impossible that someone within that branch 
missed that the $131 donation to Sloan was from a well-known neo-Nazi. I mean, the check was signed from Frederick P. Fromm and not Paul Fromm. Okay. But it doesn't matter because in politics, it's all about optics. And as long as an unknown O'Toole seen flirting with Trump types, then he gets defined by it. So why, you know, this is why we've seen O'Toole moving quickly to try to distance himself from Sloan, which is not an easy process. But then today something interesting happened because then Mr. Trudeau was asked, well, okay, can you explain why your government gave Paul Fromm's white nationalist organization a wage subsidy? We knew we had to move quickly to support workers in jobs right across the country. And obviously, uh, that meant uh, sending help immediately to families uh, and to individuals when this pandemic hit back in March so that people could keep food on the table, could continue to pay their rent, regardless of the job or the organization they worked for. So like a neo-Nazi organization? See how that goes? See how that revelation right there kind of dulls the Trudeau attack? I mean, if we're going to play these games, then let's play the games. But then Trudeau should have to answer things like, you know, how did former liberal MP Marwin Tarbara, like, how was he allowed to run despite being charged with assault and harassment? I mean, the guy was only kicked out once the story went public, and the prime minister would have known he had those charges. Like, why did he let B.C. Liberal MP Joe Pesca Solito run in the last election? The guy was facing allegations of knowingly associating with Chinese organized crime figures. There are red flags all over the Trudeau government. I mean, ask ask about the $1 million donation the Trudeau Foundation got by two Chinese businessmen said to have attended Trudeau's controversial cash-for-access private dinners at the home of a Chinese multimillionaire. One of those men actually met with Trudeau twice and is now accused of running that money laundering casino at that Big Vaughn mansion that was busted back in October. I mean, if you're offended by Sloan's donation, certainly you would want Trudeau to explain all that, right? Welcome to politics. But this brings us back to the vaccines. I'm doing a big circle back to vaccines. Because what actually is playing here are the threats that Justin Trudeau's political fortunes face over the issues of vaccines. The only story that actually matters to the rest of the world, to Canadians, is getting the vaccine. And the fact that all we've heard about for months is this big portfolio. We've got the greatest portfolio. Oh, our portfolio, our portfolio. It's so big and great and lovely and everyone envies us is the fact that Pfizer is stopping shipments to Canada next week, which means the provinces can't deliver what they're being blamed for. So that's why Ford got a bit colorful today. I'm just angry at the situation that other countries are getting at. And nothing is more important than than getting these vaccines. And if I was in his shoes, I'm sure he is doing it, but I'd be on that phone call every single day. I'd be up that guy's yin-yang so far with a firecracker, he wouldn't know what hit him from Pfizer. I would, would not stop until we get these vaccines. There you go. Yeah, well, it's yin-yang. But nonetheless, I mean, the only guy who needs a yin up his yang uh, is the prime minister. Because the vaccines are his responsibility. And Ford, you know, he's like, I'm not angry at the prime minister and I'm not angry at anyone. What we should be angry. Well, yeah, you should be angry at the prime minister. He'll blame you in a nanosecond. But any chance he can, he'll slap Ford around if it's good for his politics. 
Ford's saying, no, no, we're not angry about that. Just, but we've got to get them. Yes, we've got to get them. But this is federal jurisdiction. If you're going to brag about your big portfolio, you've got to deliver the big portfolio. And now the chickens are coming home to roost. Because we bought the vaccines late. We didn't pay, you know, big prices like Israel and other countries. We didn't pay bonuses. We didn't get the orders in time. We weren't aggressive about it. We're not calling every day, and the prime minister's clearly not calling every day. And we were promised that they'd be here, and now they're not. That really sucks. Yeah, yeah, it really sucks. Sucks for you. And I should mention, the comment Ford said about yins and yangs or whatever, apparently it's triggered the perpetually outraged who are always outraged. Of course a Toronto City Council is outraged. Apparently this promotes rape culture, which tells you just how stupid politics is today. That'd if you want to be outraged... Yeah, sorry. Funny. Ha ha. Everyone knows the saying. It's not about rape culture. And if you want to be outraged, be outraged over missing vaccines. We're now 80,000 short in Ontario. We've got no Pfizer vaccines coming next week. Delays cost lives. Delays cost our economy. Delays are keeping our kids out of school. So if you want to know why Justin Trudeau would rather have us talk about Derek Sloan, it's because these delays crush his political fortunes. I've understood that there are many different uh, musings and reports and speculations and stories about this country doing this, about that country doing that. I had a lovely conversation with uh, Angela Merkel yesterday morning in which uh, she sort of uh, uh, complained to me that every day she uh, gets it in the, uh, from the uh, German media that they're not doing as well as Canada is. I think a lot of people are uh, comparing stories from country to country and, and you know, trying to figure out how we can all move quicker. I can assure you that Minister Anand is uh, talking almost daily uh, with uh, uh, Pfizer uh, and the other vaccine vaccine companies. Mm-hmm. All right. Difference between you and Angela Merkel, my friend, is that she's got the cojones you lack, and she only has to make one phone call to get the vaccines because the producer of Pfizer is a company called BioNTech, which is actually in Germany. And unless Trudeau can pull a rabbit out of his hat again and deliver this portfolio, I mean, yeah, we got a few in the window in December and everyone got really excited about it, but we talked about it on the show. You got to get them streamlined. They have to be flowing. And guess what? Deliveries stop next week. You wonder how Israel's getting the deliveries? Well, they paid a top price. And Benjamin Netanyahu called Pfizer 17 times in one day to make sure that they were ahead of the line. They bought early they were aggressive. Trudeau did not buy early. He was not aggressive. We did not pay a premium. And now it doesn't even look like Pfizer's picking up the phone to our calls. John Keogh is founder and managing principal at Chantala, and he's also an expert in global supply chains. Good to have you, John. Hi, Alex. Nice to have, uh, meet you again. Let's chat. Yeah, we've got a demand problem that we can't supply. Uh, I mean, this is one of those train wrecks that everyone saw coming, but everyone just got so excited that the vaccine arrived early, um, and here we are. What are you seeing in the in the in the chain in the supply chains? Well, they're obviously very complex issues. In the November, early December timeframe, I was forecasting that based on current global capacity to produce vaccines, that the earliest Canada would get any level of volume would be March and most likely April. So I think that's Mm -hmm. still valid. 
Um, we just don't have the production capabilities worldwide. And you're, you're quite right. You know, Israel is, is way ahead. They've done 31 uh, people for every 100 they have in their population, uh, followed by the United Arab Emirates with, uh, with almost 21. So there is a group of five who are doing extremely well, Bahrain, Seychelles and the UK, which, which is about seven people per, per 100. And the US is in a second group after that. Canada is in a third group at 1.9. So it's, it's way behind. Um, I think there's mixed messages coming from the Prime Minister. Um, he keeps talking about, uh, it drives me a little bit daft, you know, spring is coming, giving people too much hope. But supply chains are complex and you can't, you can't uh, uh, build this false impression that once we get the vaccines, that this will be over. We don't need vaccines, we need vaccinations, we need them in people's arms. And that's a complex process. Yeah, I mean, we were told on Friday that deliveries were cut in half. And then That's we right. wake up to the headlines today that, oh, by the way, we're not getting anything. I mean, it was General Fortin who said, well, delivery stop next week. The, that didn't come from politicians. He just happened to be honest about it. And I think people do need honesty. I mean, there is um, a price to pay if you want to get to head of the line. And I don't even get the sense that I mean, the prime minister won't answer that question. Oh, did we pay more? Are we willing to pay more? What are we willing to do to get our hands on the supply? Um, so what would be going on, you know, behind the scenes as far as global leaders right now fighting over these things? Well, it, it is a complex issue. And if you, if you look at, um, you know, the equitable distribution of, of the products, it stands to reason that the countries that are the, uh, the worst, that have the worst infections, that they get priority. So I'm not surprised that the UK, Italy are in the top 10. Um, New Zealand, for example, has no um, COVID outbreaks right now, so they wouldn't be even on the list. Uh, Australia, uh, si- similar but not, so they, they do have some infections there. So I think prioritizing by country is the right way to do it, but Canada is not as severe as a lot of those uh, countries that uh, are in Europe uh, for sure. Um, but when you look at, at the countries around the world, you look at Brazil, you look at India, you look at Japan, uh, it's just uh, you know announced a state of emergency. All of these leaders will be calling Pfizer's and the Modernas to prioritize their orders. Uh, I was listening to the prime minister today and it wasn't clear that he took that approach. I think he's relying on minister. I don't think he took any approach. <laughs> he's yeah, dumped this all yeah. on, on, on the poor minister herself. And she's, she's not calling anybody. She's probably having a nervous breakdown. Yeah, but she, she's very competent. I mean, she was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you know her background. She was a professor at uh, yeah. University of Toronto uh, of contract management and, and, and corporate governance and contracts law. So, I mean, she's the ideal person in that role from a contracts perspective. But contracts, you can never have a, a watertight contract. It's just the nature of, uh, of, of business and supply chains. You can't build every, um, every possibility in there into the contract. Um, and I'm sure Pfizer built in enough ways to get out of this. In other words, when you're dealing with a new product and you're dealing with new processes, you have massive risk involved. And this is what I talked about in November and December. When, you're, when you have a new product, you have new processes, and you have an extremely difficult product that has the, you know, the cooling requirements that it has. Even if Pfizer sets up with best intentions, you, you automatically build in a lot of risk into your supply chain. So this was predictable and mm-hmm. predicted. 
Yes. I mean, production is key, and we have shown the world that we have no interest in being competitive or innovative on production, certainly not in the va- in the uh, pharmaceutical area. And we are paying the price, but we have we have seen this, John, time and again, be it PPE, uh, now vaccines, that we rely too much on everyone else to supply what we very much should be leading in and, and able to do. Um, and frankly, uh, this should have been put in motion in the last few months because we do have the production capability, but we didn't negotiate those rights. And you would have to key up certain uh, manufacturers to get it done. And we just we just kind of keep getting caught flat footed. That, that's right. I mean, that facility in Montreal was supposed to be up and running with, in, you know, within production in November, December. And it turns out that they were just putting the spade in the ground in uh, at that time frame. So that's that's really embarrassing for the government uh, to have to admit to that. But if, if you look at... Well, they won't. Um, <laughs> no, they, 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 they won't. And I, I think the... Some of the signaling coming from the Prime Minister and, and even Minister Anand, who I have a lot of respect for, uh, are, is misleading. You know, Canada is boasting that we have five, six, seven times enough vaccines for the whole country. That's the wrong message to send Canadians. And I think the wrong message is to say, oh, well, we said we'll we'll get everything done by September. So, you know, even though we have a delay of the next couple of months, uh, we'll still do everybody by September. These are the wrong messages, the wrong signals. And, and when you when you add on top of that, spring is coming, vaccines are coming. That's just the wrong signaling to uh, to put people at ease. Yeah, but I do think that as Canadians see, you know, places like Israel um, walking around free and finally vaccinated because they don't screw around like we have, um, you know, Canadians are going to start to get very, very angry. And who's to say then, um, you know, if Pfizer, Pfizer has sidelined us um, you know, this week. What's to say that this won't happen again? I mean, we're being told now over and over again by uh, Minister Anand and the Prime Minister that don't worry, people will get in this country a vaccination by September. I don't know if that means one shot. I don't know if that means an appointment. I don't know what that means. But who's to say that Pfizer again down the line won't be saying, hey, uh, we can't deliver again this week? Well, I think it's not only Pfizer. It could be it could be Moderna next week. So, you're 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 spot on, Alex. These are the real risks. And again, you know, I've talked. To, we talked previously about what I call uh, systems thinking, and what I call again the, the cascading consequences of system failure. It's like the domino effect, right? One mm-hmm. thing fails over here, and and everything just starts to fail. We don't have this concept of system thinking uh, in business, let alone in 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 government. So I think it's very realistic, the point that you're making, that uh, Pfizer could have another surprise, Moderna could have, and so could the others. But I would prefer the Prime Minister coming out saying that we have enough vaccines, or we have ordered enough vaccines for all Canadians. Let's say we'll go up a little bit, we say we have ordered 80 million, and to focus on those 80 million and not focus on 600 million or whatever the, the, the actual number is right now. They're, they're setting a false expectation by saying we have a massive number that's five to six times the population. That's just wrong. That's just wrong. Yeah, well, you're setting yourself up for failure, but you're also um, not, um, you know, managing expectations. And Canadians are patient, and I think they would be patient. But if you don't give us something to manage, um, then people just get fed up. And that's what realize, you know, we, we need leadership at this time, John. You know that, and we're not getting it. But uh, yeah, and, do, and there's something else coming very, yeah. very quickly, yeah. uh, Alex. In uh, yeah. remember, remember last year when we were talking about uh, these things? In the March-April time frame, we're going to have the migrant mm-hmm. workers coming into Canada, you know, 50,000 migrant right. workers. Okay. So they need to start the discussion right now on how do we deal with the migrant workers. 
because yeah, do they become frontline and do they bump and I mean, do they get vaccinated? How do we? uh, Yeah, there's there's so many complexities, and I never even gave that thought because, geez, March seemed like an eternity (laughs) at this point. But I appreciate it. Of course, we'll talk before then. But uh, yes, you did forecast this, and um, I'll come to you when I need to buy a lotto ticket. (laughs) No problem. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. All right, that is John Keogh joining us from Chantella. He did call it a long time ago. The Liberal Party has been calling uh, for Aaron O'Toole to remove Derek Sloan from caucus uh, for many, many months now, uh, following a a number of uh, unacceptable comments uh, that he has made. Uh, We are uh, pleased that Aaron O'Toole has finally decided to to take leadership. We'll see uh, how that unfolds. Or you should get on the vaccines and get them here. How do you deal with a problem like Aaron O'Toole? I mean, well, not a problem of Aaron O'Toole, but more of a Derek Sloan, which is a problem for Aaron O'Toole. Uh, Sloan has been a bit of a thorn in O'Toole's side since becoming leader of the party. You know, on one hand, you got to look at Sloan, who helped O'Toole get nominated as leader because it was actually his supporters who pushed O'Toole ahead of Peter McKay. But he's a gift that keeps giving. It's not that he's a social conservative that is uh, problematic for O'Toole. It's comments he has said um, in the past, comments whether he said Dr. Tam was working for China. He had the moment with his anti-vax support last month, and now this donation from a known neo-Nazi. And Sloan says he isn't going to leave without a fight, but uh, given today's political climate, O'Toole literally can't keep Sloan without hurting his party's chances. But if he dumps him, he loses Sloan's support. There's a price to pay either way, and O'Toole is going to pay it. Adrian Batra is editor of the Toronto Sun. I call on you because I know that you have been behind the scenes working in politics back in the Ford, Rob Ford days. So good to have you. Good to be with you, Alex. So you understand um, some of the complexities and the, the challenges of donations which don't come through the leader's office. So generally speaking, they don't know who is donating to the party, albeit I will give a throw out to Kelly Leach, who was also given a donation by Paul Fromm and actually said, thanks, but no thanks. But generally speaking, they don't know who is donating to the party. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the challenge, right, is you know thousands upon thousands of donations come in and you have you know, just admin staff that are are processing them and pushing them through and, you know, they, well, sure. And and they're all mostly volunteers. So there's no sort of, it's not an excuse, but just, just so the average person knows who's most of which are are not involved in the political party or how their donation, it's just very um, benign. uh, A check or, or, or a money order is sent in or e transfer or whatever it's processed into a constituency management account, and then yeah. off you go. And your name is put on a list somewhere where they're going to call you in six to eight months' time when it's time for a by-election or an election or whatever the case may be. So there's not any sort of rigorous process. Now, you did mention Kelly Leach. I find that mm-hmm. because in in that context, you know, they were getting she was getting a donation. Um, maybe they weren't a lot coming in. I don't know. They, uh, she she did raise quite a bit of money, but um, then maybe someone was alerted to it. So it's not it's not the um, you know it doesn't go through the the rigorous process that one would think. Now, with all that said. Um, Derek Sloan, frankly, and, and I've been I've been on your show talking about this even in, during the federal leadership for the Conservatives. I don't even think he should have been able to run. He has nothing but headache. He's nothing. He's caused nothing but drama and problems for the party, which has really done 
um, what I think is is a, a pretty a good, admirable job of ensuring that they are representative of all of Cana- all Canadians and they do speak for all Canadians. And Aaron O'Toole spoke of that the night that he won uh, the leadership. Um, and so he's been doing uh, 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 trying to ensure that this is not a party that is is uh, home for these types of views and, and, and people can be comfortable there. So I don't know, before we all start hand-wringing so much, let's also remind your your listeners, Alex, the majority of Canadians don't even know who the hell this guy is. Um, and mm-hmm. there's a reason for that, because white supremacists, that white nationalist notion is such a fringe, small element of who we are as Canadians. Right. And we, we all we both know, I think it's a pretty nifty tactic to be throwing this kind of distraction around uh, when you can't get vaccines in the country. So there's a political slant uh, that's being played at the federal level on this. But leadership campaigns are one thing, but governing and leading are very, very mm-hmm. different. I mean, Aaron O'Toole ran in the leadership as a true blue guy. That's you know, he wasn't going to be the progressive Peter McKay. Um, but the bottom line is when you win, you have to be able to control the Derek Sloans. Um, Stephen Harper was very good at this. I mean, he was criticized because he was kind of like a drill sergeant, but you'd need that control over the party so you don't get the bozo eruptions. And the problem for, for Aaron O'Toole now is that Sloan actually has a lot of supporters. He has and represents the social, um, the uh, social conservative side of this, and it's not even that he's a social conservative, it's some of his other views that get him in trouble, which then get Aaron O'Toole into trouble. And there is, as you know, a triple, double, triple standard when it comes to conservatives. So what does Aaron O'Toole do? He's got to govern from the center and try to grow the base. Yeah, he does. But, you know, I, I hear this notion all the time of, you know, where will they go? Where will that, where will that support go? Well, it sure as hell is not going to the Liberals, and it's definitely not going to the NDP. So either they stay home or they vote for Aaron O'Toole. So I, I think Maxine. that's Well, yeah. If, if but, Maxine I mean, decides to show again. Yeah. Sure, sure. Um, but, you know, I, I, I just think that there is less of a, a, a political price to pay to eject him than there is to keep him. And so I think that O'Toole is moving in the right direction. But... I want to note the clip that you played right before I came on with you and Justin Trudeau mm-hmm. saying that the liberals have been asking, uh, saying that he should release that and he should show. I'm glad that he, I think he said, I'm glad that Aaron O'Toole has shown leadership. Now that, yes. <laughs> I want, that the irony of that statement alone, based on the fact that this country is going to have zero vaccines coming into our borders. Uh, we're still going to have flights that are infected with COVID-19 patients, but um, we're, we're not getting any vaccines vaccines in is a bit too cute by half. And I think it's also important to remind your listeners just more broadly on the conversation we were just having with respect to the rigor by which someone is vetted, um, particularly this from character. He, his two weird organizations received federal money, taxpayers money for the, for the, uh, um, the, the, wage uh, the wage subsidy. Thank you. And so you you think that with the with the army of staff at the federal level and you know organizations all applying for different types of money there might have been some vetting there but so let's not let's not you know you know chastise everybody with the same swath and let's let's sort of step back for a moment and and, and look at for this individual for who he is so he gets many federal money from the federal government from the taxpayers of Canada 
that money is not going to get paid back. And now um, he's he's you know really taking away what is actually an excellent opportunity for the Conservatives to make uh, score some political points against the Liberals with their cock up of the uh, vaccine program, and that's been taken away. I mean that's a pretty powerful thing for one guy to be able to do. But you know we in the media are part of the issue too. We conflate mm-hmm. these things. To the point where conservatives have to be so pristine, um, and it's 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 a far it's it's a far unreasonable standard by which to hold uh, Aaron O'Toole. I think at this point. Well, but then you then you risk getting a guy like Donald Trump um, because what you end up doing is alienating a voice of the vote uh, voter base who actually just don't feel like they're heard because they've always got someone wagging their finger and being made to feel guilty because. You know, to like uh, Aaron O'Toole means that I'm a neo-Nazi. I mean, what, what, like, mm-hmm. you know, people just want to live their lives and they just want to feel like those in charge are actually taking a charge. But they're, you know, I, I don't know where this is going to go, but I can tell you it's not going to stop. And it's it's this cancer of identity politics that is absolutely destroying politics today. But Aaron O'Toole is going to have about a million more of these lobbed his way and he's got to be ready for them. And he's got to define himself. I don't even know where the heck he is. Well, yeah. He should have been out today talking vaccines. Where is he? Yeah, well, you want to talk about lost opportunities because, you know, there's nothing... There's nothing uh, that conservatives like to do better than shoot themselves in the foot. And, you know, he's got other problems on his hands, too, not to mention just just the bozo eruptions, as you say. But um, how did this information leak? Right. Like, was Mm -hmm. it internal? Was it someone else? I mean, those are other problems that he's going to have to contend with. And, you know, you brought up Prime Minister Stephen Harper. And, yeah, he did face a lot of criticism for sort of ruling with an iron fist. But there's a reason why that happens. There's a reason why um, the leader is afforded so much uh, opportunity to to do those sorts of things. We saw Premier Ford eject an MPP from his caucus and and uh, relinquish his ability to run for the PCs in the next election in with a with a you know two lines of a press release and so I appreciate the fact that when when the conservatives signed on to all of these um, transparency and accountability things the liberals were going through ad scam and they wanted to prove the transparency of their party and things like that I, I understand all of those things but um you know this is these are these are uh, leader decisions that that should be afforded we often you and i often criticize the liberals uh, particularly justin trudeau's liberals um for how he governs and and how everything is is comes out of the pmo and and, and it's so it's so controlled to a degree i suppose there's been a lot of uh controversy and scandal but you know at the end of the day there's a lot of um there's a lot of loyalty still to to Trudeau, and and part of that is because uh, of that control, of that centralized control. MPs, MLAs, MPPs, they don't like it, you know, particularly backbenchers. But um, if you if you like being in the governing side of the party, you kind of adhere to these things. And so yeah, I think you, that you kiss is, ass or you're kicked out. Well, sure, and 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 that. <laughs> You know, the the challenge with that, of course, is then you're not affording MPEs or MLAs or MPEs right. to be able to think think freely. And you always like to they always like to say things. So well, I'm going to vote uh, how my constituents would want me to. No, 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 no. The votes yeah. are whipped. Like it's, yeah. it's really a precious notion. And this whole notion of a um, uh, what did they say? Oh, it's a free vote. It's a free vote. Those those are things that uh, you'll uh, that uh, your listeners will sometimes hear people say. But no, those votes are genuinely whipped. And frankly, if you if your caucus leaders leadership doesn't know how your co- co- colleagues are going to vote, you're you should be in that role. But 
anyway, I mean, we are we are in a situation now where we're focusing on um, that notion of identity politics, cancel culture, all of those things. But we're in such extremes with it, right? The vast majority sort of reside somewhere in the middle. Yeah, they have an opinion on it. Yeah, they don't like it. Um, you know, the rhetoric on either side, but um, it's the fringes that get the attention. I mean, look at you and you and I just started your show talking about this, whereas as opposed to talking about the fact that we are the critical situation on our hands by not getting vaccinations in this country. You know, that's the that's the that's the issue today and tomorrow. And frankly, it seems to be going into months from now where we're going to have you know, our country vaccinated. One and a half percent of Canadians are vaccinated yeah. as of as of right now. That's pathetic. That's the leadership that we're looking for. So it's unfortunate that this whole story, which is fringe at best, has over uh, has eclipsed what should have been uh, holding Trudeau's feet to the fire today and 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 his procurement minister as to where the hell our vaccines are. The good news is I've got a three hour show, so I will uh, keep talking about it. Adrian, oh, always I a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. All right, good to have you on this Tuesday night. So how is this pandemic affecting your kids? Because without question, it is. I mean, in in our household, my seven-year-old's made clear he hates COVID. He also doesn't really understand what it is or why it's stopping him from living his life. He just knows he can't go to school, which misses terribly, can't visit his friends or family, can't go out and have fun and play sports. I mean, in COVID times, kids of all ages cannot be kids. And I think it's going to be a a while before we know the full effects, but I was reading an interesting article about this collection of children's and kids' drawings done during the pandemic that's starting to tell the story that the impact this pandemic is having, I think, on a whole generation of children. Dr. Nikki Martin is a program head of early childhood studies at uh, University of Guelph. She joins us now. And Dr., um, I had to check my notes for your title, but... It's interesting because you actually and your research team looked into this. You you collected drawings from uh, Canadians aged 2 to 18. You wanted to see what kids were drawing and thinking during this pandemic. And what did your research tell you? Yeah, absolutely. We wanted to be able to hear children's voices. We wanted to understand from their unique perspective and experience what has what is the effect of the pandemic on children, exactly what you're saying, what your seven-year-old had said, right? And so what we're seeing is kids are struggling. There's, you know, a distinct, within the artwork, and and art is a way that kids, uh, for kids to express themselves, their feelings, their emotions, process their their days. So what we're seeing is sadness, uh, Mm -hmm. feeling alone, anxious, worried, maybe a lack of motivation or distress. There's a lot of feelings of failure or not achieving in school, which, you know, feels awful and that brings shame and and guilt. But but also the part that worries me most is this um, for older kids, there's this disillusionment or this helplessness, this fear of of what is the future going to bring? What could my future be? And I think that's uh, that's something we need to be aware of. When you look at the pictures, uh, some of them that were submitted, I mean, they are dark. Um, and, you know, you'll see like the posture of a young child sitting mm-hmm. alone in a dark bedroom, those kinds of images. Yeah. Were you looking at certain ages, um, you know, that they're comprehending this differently? Obviously, a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old or even a four-year-old is going to comprehend this differently than, let's say, a teenager. But was there a certain takeaway for you in the group as far as the age of the children and what the effects are? 
Oh, absolutely. And so really, when I started this project, I thought I would get a lot of parents of younger children that were eager to participate. What I wasn't expecting, but was really happy to hear is that the or see is that the teenagers have really taken this on as an opportunity to be able to share their voice and their perspective. And so we're seeing some of those darker images or the feelings of, of sadness and isolation are, are, I think, probably speaking more to the um, adolescents, not because the younger children don't feel it, but as you expressed, they don't understand the impact as much. Whereas adolescents, their occupation of the time, what they're developmentally working on is that separation, individuation. It's moving away from parents. It's connecting to peers. It's doing those kind of things that are outside the home. And now this feels extremely painful. Okay. And then are you able to gauge from um, the research uh, that you're doing who will suffer adverse effects longer? Um, you know, yeah. the pictures that you get from younger children, do they tell you a story that maybe we're seeing differently in teens? And can we draw a new picture moving forward, a brighter picture? Yeah, I, that's a really great question. And so for younger kids, I mean, we're, and I think you said it well when you said at the beginning, we're not going to know yet because we don't know the duration. We don't know the impact, but we're starting to see the effect of mental health, right? We're starting right. to think, mm -hmm. to see that kids are, their mental health, their emotional well-being is being affected by this. Um, maybe not as much with younger kids, but maybe. And some of that depends. It's really hard to see um, right now because it depends a lot on what their experience is. So some kids, in teens may feel like, you know, life is pretty normal. Mom and dad are just both home a lot more or moms are home or however dad is home, however that looks in their family. And, you know, that there's kind of, there's more, more time for family, but other kids where there's maybe a job loss or there's death or there's illness, or there's more conflict in a marital or, you know, family relationships might be having a different experience that is a far more negative where they're hearing a lot right. of a lot of uh, fighting or, you know, it feels awful for them in, in many different kinds of ways. So obviously with that case, you're going to have a different outcome than you are with generally kids who feel loved and supported. And so really my big, uh, so we will see, and through the research, one of the things that we're looking at is as it, because right now we're still collecting art. So if anybody wants to share, um, we'd love to receive it because what we want to be able to see is get enough, get enough art that we can look at themes and patterns to be able to understand what has been the real effect, what is meaningful to, you know, kids in different parts of the country, in rural mm -hmm. and urban environments, for all different ages, so that we can then understand and put in help and support or and work with policy people to be able to make sure that they have the trajectory they need for life so we can kind of move past this. Yeah, well... well from your lips to God's ears, let us move past this. But, yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think what we'll see is, you know, if you're uh, working in the, the public sector and you didn't lose a job, let's say, or, or, or salary, I mean, then you're not dealing with maybe the financial strife that some families are dealing with, which is a real situation for a lot of families and, of course, a real stress for a lot of kids. And then, you know, the research, I'm sure, is going to be multi-pronged and, and quite complex. And there has been so much debate about things like, you know, getting kids back in school and getting back to normal. 
Um, yeah. And again, you know, we're, we're still drawing the picture. I don't know what it's going to look like for how long and, and what the best thing for parents to do. I, but I yeah. do know that we are seeing real mental health issues in kids. It's just about how quickly yeah. can we remedy this, you know? It, it's true. And so there is some things that we can do right now. And, you know, one of the things that we can do to help support our kids right now is normalizing mental health issues, normalizing these feelings of feeling sad, of feeling out of control, of anxiety, of worries by uh, by being open and talking and sharing and creating loving and trusting relationships. And that's not always easy for everybody. You know, that, that there's a lot of vulnerability for parents involved in being able to open up and, you know, also say, yeah, I'm really having a hard time, too. Or I can identify. I understand what that feels like to a young child who's just crying. And I know because I sometimes feel that way, too. What it does is it's important that a child feels it's important all of us, all humans, but specifically mm-hmm. children, that they feel heard you know, uh, heard and seen and understood that they have that feeling of love and trust. And when they do, they learn resilience and they learn they can, with support and care, that they can get through things. And that's important, but we do need to make sure that we're there to listen and that we're there to share our own experiences because this is unique. We're all experiencing it in different ways. So being able, what would be great is if we could actually normalize that it's okay not to be okay and that we're all challenged in dealing with this differently, therefore normalizing mental health struggles. And then if we came out the other end with a a greater ability as, as people and as a society to talk about more openly about these things and share experiences as human beings, we would be in a better place. All right. Well, that's good to know as a mother, because when my son says, I hate COVID, I don't even fight him on it. I just say, I hate it too. You know? I hate it too. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I hate it too. All right. So it's childart.ca. That's where people can send uh, their children's drawings for your research. Yeah. We'll have you back again because I think this is one of those ongoing conversations that continually needs to be had um, yeah. and certainly uh, see what we can take away from it. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me and sharing this important uh, conversation and topic. My absolute pleasure and uh, my thank you to you, Dr. Nikki Martin. And again, the the website you can go to is childart.ca. It's actually quite fascinating to see what the kids have come up with. You can join us Monday through Friday, 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on point and this is Global News Radio.